The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Time for the week trending and we're joined by the movie editor with Hot Press who's also a relationships columnist with the Irish Times, Roe McDermott and by the managing director of the communications clinic, Owen Tomás McDermott. What's in a name? Let's start there. Can you tell us please, Owen Tomás, about two names which are changing and why? Yeah, well, the first name that's changing is the library in Trinity College, which has up until now been called the Berkeley Library. And Trinity College have done a review in relation to this following a request from the Students' Union that the name of George Berkeley will be taken off uh, the library because of his connections with slavery and his philosophy and thinking around slavery. From the 1700s. From the 1700s. And Trinity did quite a long review, detailed review into it. I think three academics looked into it and they have taken, a, I would say, a very sensible approach to it where they have decided that it is going to be renamed. They have yet to come up with the name. It could be the Paul Meskell name. It could be the uh, Mary Robinson name. It could be the Seamus Heaney name. All are very significant individuals in Irish life. It could be any of those (laughs) names. But we have yet to come up with, or they have yet to come up with the name. They're also taking a, uh, they are not taking a kind of a one size fits all though in re- approach with Berkeley. Uh, for example, there's a stained glass window in Trinity College uh, depicting Berkeley. Oh, that uh, has to come out, so does they're, it? No, they're deciding that they're going to take a retain and explain approach with it, which again, you could say, well, looking at that piece of art, there is a, you could make the argument for retaining it, whereas the library can be changed easily enough. And if they applied the retain and explain approach with the glass, you could argue it doesn't have to be yes. this one size so fits all. So we'll get to the second naming in a second. So what do you think? Is that an appropriate response or is it a necessary response? No, I think it is completely appropriate because I think if you think of this, I mean, this is 1700s. There was an abolitionist movement. This isn't like a Roman emperor and we're taking this as there were no moral conversations around slavery happening at this time. Of course there were. And there were also, like Berkeley had, he was very vocal about his pro-slavery beliefs. He believed enslavement was justified as it enabled the conversion of enslaved Africans to Christianity. He also had plans for the Bermuda scheme, which was a scheme to propose uh, to have a school and fill it with kidnapped indigenous children, again, for uh, ideas of... of, converting them. Um, so he was incre- he had these incredibly dangerous views that even at the time were protested and people at the time had huge moral issues with. And I think again oh, sorry, was, not- there not, was there not, at the risk of sounding like Donald Trump, there were good <laughs> people on both sides, but was there not good to him as well as a philosopher? Did he not actually work as Church of Ireland I think Bishop of Cloyne in Cork? Did he not do good things such as, I mean they have a city named after him in California, they have a university named after him. Absolutely and I think some of the arguments I've heard against this renaming of the of the Berkeley Library have said, "Oh my God, you're wiping away history." He's going to exist in history. It's not like his Wikipedia page is disappearing from the face of the earth. But we're choosing who to celebrate, who to commemorate, and who to condemn. And as we said, like they're keeping the stained glass window, they're not erasing his name from the grounds, but they're saying, "Is it appropriate?" Then the Library of Trinity, where we're talking about progress, education, a new generation of students, what values we in Dublin and Ireland hold, who do we want to commemorate? And surely there's a more powerful and suitable figure. And I think that's fine. I think the outrage against it is just it's very extreme for the renaming of a library. Why are you hanging on to the idea of let's keep... I mean, we're... I think also we have to address the fact that modern slavery still exists. I think that needs to be an important part of the conversation and acknowledging that this isn't a historical thing. I think there are 50 million people in slavery okay. that were marked well, like last always, year. I agree 
agree with Roe. And <laughs> I, tell us about the second meaning. Well, across the road uh, from Trinity College, people would be familiar that there is the Weston Hotel owned by the Marriott Group. They have decided to change their name to Westmoreland. They wouldn't, you would figure when they were changing their name, decided to name it after the street that the Weston finds itself on. However, uh, Westmoreland Street itself is named after the Earl of Westmoreland. And what's his problem? He was into ra- he was into slavery as well, as it turned out. And Who knew that, I wonder? Well, well Did you it know seems that? to be, this is the thing. I think it th- turns out to be the way of the day. And uh, if you look, I, I would think the difference between, again, the two, I don't believe the Westmoreland Hotel now needs necessarily to change its name because it is named after the street rather mm. than after the Earl. I think an interesting rebrand. Like I don't know why they're rebranding in the first place, but I think if you have these conversations, we act as if they are completely historical, and we ignore the fact that modern slavery is a huge issue facing and, people today. And is today. where we draw the line, or are there other things? Should we be doing an audit of well, street names around Dublin and Ireland to look at the appropriateness of them? We're all very proud of the Caravaggio, for example, which hangs in the in the gallery. Caravaggio was a, a murderer, for example. We here in America, for instance, George Washington, you have Washington D.C his face is on the dollar bill he was a slave owner as well so there is not a, a situation where it's there's a one size fits all and I think part of the thing is that you would take the cliched view of a case by case basis and understanding that there are grey areas and I think this argument came from Trinity students and was overlooked by historians and researchers and academics which feels like such a suitable way of approaching this because it's in a college of course you should listen to the student body of course you should, could listen to academics and thinkers who are associated with the college and say, what are the college's values? So this isn't going to apply to everything throughout history. So again, I just think the outrage is a little bit um, A listener says, well, how many streets were renamed in Ireland after we became a republic? Absolutely nothing wrong with renaming things. I think it was even when we, before we became a republic as a free state. For example, Sackville Street... Mm-hmm. Yeah, became O'Connell yeah. Street. And there are loads of examples. And if you look at how street names were anglicised as well. So I think, why are we so against the idea of making conscious choices about who we are now? And again, we're not erasing history. We're just updating who we want to be in accordance with modern day values. And you remember in recent years, there has been a trend towards toppling statues. Sure, we were way ahead of that when we blew up Nelson's <laughs> column in the mid-1960s. <laughs> OK, what about what Steven Spielberg has had to say, Ro, about no movie should be revised based on modern sensitivity. Yeah, Steven Spielberg released an edited version of E.T. where uh, FBI agents enter into a room with children in it and they're carrying guns and he went in and edited so that they were holding walkie-talkies and then came out and said, I made a mistake and I shouldn't have done that. And he said that uh, I never should have messed with the archives of my own work and I don't recommend anyone do that. All our movies are a kind of signpost of where we were when we made them, what the world was like and what the world was receiving when we got those stories out there. So I really regret having that out there. And then he also of course was asked about the Roald Dahl saga and the controversy around that and the editing of uh, Roald Dahl books for new additions to erase words like fat and ugly and beastly to just beastly and it's all about this conversation but what I think is so fascinating about this is again people will say oh my god this is PC world gone mad. This was the director's decision and then his statement about it. Which he regretted but he made the initial decision. There wasn't a call for him to edit E.T. He did it and then people would be like this is 
PC world gone mad. This was his decision. <laughs> Maybe he should be editing Jaws because it was unfair to sharks. Well, well, Jaws is a classic. And I think, though, there is a couple of interesting things, and I would agree with, with again, with what, what Roe has said. It's not clear You can cut. disagree with Roe, you know. Well, we might no, get to that later on. I'm not allowed <laughs> after the Prince Harry escapade. Um, <laughs> but we're going to get to, if you look at it, it's not necessarily clear cut. Um, and I think in certain circumstances, we have to ask if, if you don't modify the art, um, do you kill it? Do you end it? Mm. So that idea of looking at Steven Spielberg, for example, and E.T., I wonder would the art have been killed whether he had left it with guns. I don't believe it was a major change. Similarly with Roald Dahl, I think people were still going to purchase it. But then you look at the examples of Agatha Christie, for example, and uh, her novel that was named Then There Were None. We know that 40 years ago it was named something else, Ten Little N-Words, for example. Now, looking back 40 years later after that change, nobody is saying it was the wrong idea mm. to change the title of that book. Similarly, I think in uh, Breakfast for Tiff- Breakfast with, uh, Breakfast Tiffany's, for Tiffany's yeah. Mickey Rooney's character, mm. uh, he played uh, a Japanese man and uh, a horrendous character with a horrendous accent and horrendous makeup to make him look like that. And Mickey Rooney himself said that he was deeply embarrassed by playing that role. That is now, most of the time, I, I understand, is edited out of the movie um, because leaving it in would kill that classic and people wouldn't be exposed to observing that movie. But having it edited out, it gives it a new lease of life. So I don't think, again, we can say we shouldn't edit or we should. I think it comes to it depends. But I think there's there's such an important differentiation to make of like, oh, is this a culture war that everybody was clamouring for guns to be edited out of E.T.? No, there weren't. Was everyone clamouring for a Roald Dahl to be edited? No, they weren't. The estate and the publishers made that decision and I think actually it was quite a cynical marketing employee that worked perfectly. I think Disney have been quite interesting about this when they have films like Songs of the South, which have really racist characters in them. They have kept them, but they put a title card before saying this depicts racist caricatures. We do not stand by them. Uh, but to erase this would to be erased a part of history and a part of what we contributed to, and that's important. So I think that's a really interesting approach to acknowledge this was problematic. We shouldn't have contributed this, but also we're not going to literally whitewash over this either. Listener says we have streets all over Ireland named after the vile white supremacist and anti-abolitionist John Mitchell. Indeed, we've GA clubs named after him as well. I think it's actually accurate to say. So it's a difficult area. Uh, Jerry Springer, should we also be erasing his TV programmes from the archives, given the way that they were nasty attempts to set people against each other, uh, all for the sake of the entertainment of others? Your assessment of his TV show is probably accurate, Matt. But I'd I'd like to go back a step because... I think Jerry Springer in particular is a quite an interesting person mm. and it's worth to remember he had a life before the Jerry Springer show and it's quite an impressive, successful career but also a very interesting life. He was born in the London Underground, for example, to two parents fleeing the Holocaust. Both his uh, grandmothers died in an extermination camp. Uh, he then moved to the United States where he studied in uh, Northwestern University, a very significant law school. He became part of Robert Kennedy's uh, presidential campaign. He was a lawyer and a partner in a very successful law firm. He began then to dip his toe into broadcasting. He was mayor of Cincinnati at least once, maybe twice. He missed out on Congress by about 4%. He took a job as a news anchor when it was at its lowest ratings and when he left it was at its highest ratings. 
and then that and was, then was all, all going very well until well and then if I make one final point I remember hearing Gay Byrne say that whether you're on news or chat you're in the entertainment business and Jerry Springer understood that he was in the entertainment business and his objective was to get bums on seats and eyeballs on the television and he went for 27 years with 5,000 episodes and whether we like it or not <laughs> He was hugely oh, successful no, you in go that. Go for all the lowest common denominator nonsense like that, but basically pitting people against each other. Then to be followed by the likes of Jeremy Kyle doing mm. the same in the UK and making it even worse, really exploitative of people didn't know better perhaps. Yeah, the legacy of the TV show is not good and I think it did spark off an era of really sensationalist, really horrible TV. I will say I listened to a podcast that Jeremy Springer recorded last month and he's a very amiable person and a really good storyteller. He has an incredible story about being mayor of Cincinnati and agreeing to fight a £550 bear live on TV to raise money for the city. But he was, he always defended his show and he said, yes, of course it was salacious and of course it was sensationalist. Um, But he said, the rhetoric around it could often be very elitist and that it was working class people coming on and there were really derogatory names for the people who used to go on and they said people said that they weren't educated enough to make decisions about whether to go on TV but these were people with problems who really you had to fight really hard to get on our show we weren't ringing people you had to really call repeatedly and ask to be on the show and we were taking their problems and we were giving them attention which they wanted now I think that is a very nice argument to make for a very exploitative show that really did make a mockery of a lot of people and as you said it really paved the way for shows like Jeremy Kyle but I will say I think Jeremy Springer he didn't know what his shows were going to be so even when he had shows and the titles of which were um, Pimping Out My Twin Sister and Hooking Up With My Therapist and I Married a Horse he didn't know what the show was going to be no, on the day. And he was surprised by what he got? Always surprised. The listener and- wants to know were they not scripted? No, he basically said uh, uh, in this interview, he kind of gave a detailed account of how the show worked and he said, I never knew what was going to happen so my reactions were authentic. And also, I never took sides. I asked the questions that audience members would ask and then I would make a joke. That was literally my job. So he was much more mediated than someone like Jeremy Kyle who was quite awful and confrontational and really attacked and contributed to the humiliation of his guests, I think. Um, But he also said uh, contestants or contestants, contributors had to agree to Contestants might have been a good audience slip there. (laughs) Um, they had to sign a waiver saying here are 28 possible scenarios that could happen on our show for example you could get punched you could get tackled by security someone in the audience might throw something at you there could be a riot I promise that will not happen in this studio during the ad break (laughs) which we need to take now Okay, let's continue with the week trending with Owen Tomas McDermott, Managing Director of the Communications Clinic, and of course, Ron McDermott, who is with us each week on movies and other things besides. So, can I ask you, Ro, to tell us about these Just Stop Oil protesters who've received significant jail sentences in England for what's been known as the Dartford Crossing protest. What's involved in this? Yeah, they scaled the Dartford Crossing bridge and uh, were on the suspension bridge and really caused a huge amount of disruption and they were there from about uh, several hours and I think there was major disruptions. There was a pregnant woman who needed medical attention, there was a kid with disabilities who needed, who also needed attention, there was someone who missed uh, their funeral 
the best friends. They've given this incredibly lengthy sentence. They were up for about 37 hours and they argued it was a peaceful protest, but they were found guilty of causing a public nuisance. And I think it's just started a lot of conversations around these types of protests that are highlighting really big environmental issues and then getting really intense punishments. And if you think of the recent protests that were happening in art galleries and the uproar that they caused, now this one was obviously much more disruptive. Yeah, but hang on. What have these protests told us that we don't actually know? Well, you see, I think that's the, the interesting thing about this, Matt, is you would think part of it is a protest should be to raise awareness, to get attention and to change behaviour. They've gotten attention, but they haven't given us anything new or different. And what they have ended up doing is annoying people rather than influencing them. Counterproductive I would think they're incredibly counterproductive and not necessarily effective because ultimately what you're trying to do is change people's behaviour and a significant group of people's behaviour because ultimately it's the large corporates and the governments that they need to be actually able to influence. Mm. And two lads hanging themselves off a bridge or throwing dust over a snooker table isn't going to do it. And you would say, rather than saying, okay, they're making a reasonable argument in a reasonable way gaining attention it's becoming counterproductive I will say though I mean these protesters were not young they're, well we'll say they're, they're in their prime of life they're about 37 and 40 <laughs> but a lot of compared to uh, some of the younger protesters that we saw in art galleries in places like Amsterdam who were kind of teenagers or very early 20s they were not young by the standards however is there not a question about how these stories are reported on and whether the media are taking the opportunity to get in depth um, about the issues that are being highlighted here because I see a lot of news stories complaining about protesters and talking about is this the right way to protest protest and not a huge amount of stories going this is what they're protesting whether or not we agree here are the facts about it and shouldn't we be taking that opportunity and I will say I teach in UCD and I teach young people who are you know between 18 and 22 usually they have huge climate anxiety like intense climate anxiety and they're far more clued in and talking about it far more than I think older people that's why we speak about this Every Thursday mm. on this programme with John Gibbons and on other days as well that we regard it as being one of the major issues, if not the biggest that society faces. But it's, we're not going to increase the amount of coverage we give because somebody Matt, throws paint over something. you're the exception and you are spiritually 22. <laughs> the so. climate is getting, gets coverage all of the time. We're hearing about the, the weather in Spain, for example, and that's being linked, obviously, to, to climate. Uh, we hear of COP, whatever number, and the volume of coverage that gets. Climate is in the news, I would argue, almost every day. It doesn't necessarily need any more attention. The issue is we're not getting the behaviour change in the large organisations and at governmental level that we need for that actually to have an impact. And that's why you'd think that some of these um, protests, in particular um, the disruption caused and the annoyance that snooker fans like I may have had, uh, are counterproductive. The listener says the oil protests haven't upset everyone. Many of us agree with them. It's unfortunate that our media differs in opinion. Well, it was the judge in the case that jailed the guys who differed in opinion. Another one, though, says idiots locked them up for years, which I think is what actually happened in this particular case. Um, Call time for a couple more things to finish. Tell us about Twitter reinstating blue ticks for some. Oh, it's just been a nightmare. I think for someone who claims to be interested in free speech and transparency, Elon Musk is like a toddler at the helm of Twitter doing things on his whim and as he likes. So he said that all blue ticks were going to get taken away and unless you subscribed and you paid your $11 a month, uh, you wouldn't have your verification ticks. Then everyone went on board and there were, I think there were 19 verified Hillary Clinton accounts because all you needed to do was pay the money so it caused absolute bedlam. Then everyone's ticks was taken away so the Pope didn't have a tick, Beyond 
Beyonce didn't have a take, except there were a few people like LeBron James, author Stephen King and William Shatner, whose takes were retained. And they came out and said, and Stephen King, who was very vocally critical of Elon Musk, came out and said, I'm not paying this $11 a month. I don't know why I still have my take. And Elon Musk had to admit that he, altruistic person as he is, was sucking up the $33 a month and paying for certain people's ticks, even if they hadn't asked. So this, of course, caused major controversy around transparency and who was Elon Musk promoting and not promoting. And if he could keep uh, an author verified, why couldn't he keep journalists verified, political figures verified? I know it's been a mess. I think it's a cost-saving exercise that he's in the process doing rather than a revenue generation one. Um, That the revenue generation thing is the bit of a distraction over there, but that the verification is uh, a cost-saving, as mentioned, and then covers him legally because he can then point to say, well, we do have a verification process, even though we might have 50 million uh, Hillary Clinton accounts. Because you'll remember where verification came in was back in around 2009, 2010, after Tony La Russa, baseball coach for the Cardinals, sued Twitter because of false accounts, and they brought it in to cover themselves. But to do that, they had something like 420,000 verified accounts. That's a lot of man hours to make sure those are verified accounts. They needed an army. An army costs a lot of money. As we know, Musk got rid of 80% of his staff, so he saved that cost, but he's still covering himself legally. Very briefly, Fox got rid of Tucker Carlson at the start of the week, as we covered. How has he finally responded? Tucker has finally responded with an analysis that TV debates ultimately get forgotten about, and it looks like he's making a bit of a pivot to uh, deciding new media will be the way he'll go. Podcasting and uh, YouTube, I wouldn't be surprised. But he's saying that these are the things that we forget about. The most frustrating thing about Tucker Carlson is I don't think, I think he know it's an act that he's doing, that he knows exactly what he's playing at. From my understanding, having read about him and also heard people speak about him, he's urbane, well-educated, thoughtful, highly engaging and one-to-one, but he knows exactly what he was playing at, spewing hate and dividing a country. Uh, but ultimately, when he wasn't making Murdoch money, he got turfed out. I love his final line. The other thing you notice when you take a little time off is how unbelievably stupid most of the debates you see in television are. They're completely irrelevant. They mean nothing. Sure, those are the debates that he's fueled. Matt, I personally think it is beautiful that a multimillionaire Nepo baby, heir to the Swanson fortune, a guy who has had television programs on all three of major cable networks uh, over the past 20 years, is finally speaking truth to power in the studio he had built in his house in Maine. And I'm also glad that he's such a man of the people with the boarding schools he attended in Connecticut and Switzerland, the four homes his father owned before he married Swanson, is finally going somewhere where he can say true things as opposed to the lies he's been telling to his audience for the past two decades. Rome McDermott and own Tomas McDermott. Thank you. The last word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4:30. Today, F-